0: Go ahead and get started, and a few more people might come in and join us by Zoom. Um, Kyle, are you going to start with a little? Uh, the, the, the official start language for city
1: meeting via hybrid. Are you- Good, how are you? Thank you. Uh, my name is Kyle Kobe. I'm a planner, and I'll be helping facilitate the Zoom video portion of the meeting. We'll work alongside the chair to facilitate the meeting a few housekeeping items for the hybrid meeting the meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the video channel and Cable channel 25 please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you're not speaking the chat function for this meeting is disabled all chats be directed to the meeting facilitator unless you are participating during the meeting please turn your video off this allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen you will still be able to hear the meeting when you are participating please turn your video on if you have any trouble, you can send a chat to the Zoom facilitator. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Kyle. And thanks, everyone, for being here and on Zoom. Um, we are going to have a presentation um, from Clarion, and then we have some of the discussion questions we sent out. We'll talk about that, and we'll talk about some future meetings. Um, so I think, Elizabeth, are you... Doing the presentation. I am doing the presentation. Can everyone hear me? Okay. Yes. Oh, Great. Awesome. Why'd you take it away then?
2: Okay. Thank you so much. So we have um, a fairly short presentation this afternoon, and let me go um, share screen and get my slides up here.
3: Kyle, do we look okay? Good name. Okay,
2: everyone can see the slideshow? Yes. Oh, no, I've just lost everyone. Hold on. I can't see you. Okay. So we are um, in the process of drafting the code assessment. And we have um, put our preliminary thoughts down on paper, following up on the meetings that we had in the city and looking at the plans and the code. And this afternoon's meeting is a preview of the document. Um, We will finish up the drafting and get the document um, posted for your review and for public review in um, early January followed by meetings with you um, later in January and then public community meetings so we can gather more input about the code assessment. So hopefully everybody received the shorter outline version of it. Um, When the document comes through, it's probably gonna be in the 60-ish page range. So we wanted to start with something a little shorter. It's an outline, it's incomplete. Um, And so we're just focusing on the kind of higher level ideas tonight, want to share with you what we see um, and get some feedback on some specific questions that we actually think will be the subject of conversation um, across some of the project. So I'm going to get started here, maybe. Okay, so we're going to do the overview. We've got some key topics to discuss. The questions were in the overview that you got a copy of, and I'm gonna go through them again um, at the beginning of the presentation at the end. And then we have some next steps and some housekeeping. So um, just to go back to where we were when we started, role of the steering committee to share knowledge and insights about the community, to provide advice about the um, land development code update concepts and issues, to help guide our outreach messaging. This evening in particular, we don't need to draft or edit any code language and we don't need to vote anything in or out. So we're kind of um, listening and guiding is our role today. So reminding everyone where we are in the project, we're. Um, in phase two or task two, and we're um, pretty rapidly coming to the completion of this task. We'll get the code assessment drafted, we'll share it, we'll gather feedback, and then we'll move into drafting. We don't redraft the code assessment. It's a pretty high level document, and we know we're going to learn more information as we go forward. So we use it as a roadmap, but then we move into drafting. So our project goals, are to update the LDC, to support and implement plan 2040 and the strategic plan, and a whole host of plans we're going to talk about in a minute. To identify opportunities within the land development code for the city to achieve goals related to climate change, sustainability, housing, economic development, and other community priorities. To establish a simpler and more consistent set of development procedures, and to make the code more user friendly, uh, more searchable and more easy to understand. So the code assessment overview is gonna come to you in four parts. Um, Part one, we're gonna talk about guiding plans and policies. Part two, take a little um, look at the current land development code. We kind of slice it and dice it, talk about what's in there, um, talk about what could go in there or how we could change things that are in there. Part three of the code assessment is gonna talk about some foundational aspects of the code update. Um, That is a broad range of topics and we'll get into that a little bit this afternoon. And then finally, we've got an annotated outline of the um, updated code. So the questions that we sent to you to think about and that we'll talk about a little bit today and we'll talk about a lot more in January um, are five questions. Um, What does neighborhood character mean in Lawrence? What does the steering committee need to know um, in terms of thinking about the future of commercial and industrial business parks? How do we start to get better coordination between historic preservation and infill and or redevelopment? Um, And we're gonna say infill slash redevelopment for a while until we all decide what we want infill to be defined as and redevelopment to be defined as, but we're gonna bring them together right now. We wanna talk about if it would be helpful to explore adding a neighborhood meeting um, to the beginning of some application processes. And we want some feedback about how the community thinks about water use in development. So kind of some broader across the board questions here. So part one of the code assessment, guiding plans and policies. So of course, Plan 2040 um, is our major guiding document adopted in fall of 2019. Um, And this plan establishes pretty much our baseline So the policies that guide Lawrence's future growth while preserving and enhancing the natural environment, improving public health safety and bolstering the city's economic vitality. Our key chapters for implementation are environment and natural resources, growth and development, Lawrence neighborhoods and housing, and the specific land use and reference plan. So those aren't chapters, but those are um, referenced in the back of the plan. If you haven't had a chance to flip through it yet, it would be great if you did that um, before our meeting in January. So we said at the end of this slide that there are the specific land use and the reference plans. And just to kind of get everyone um, sort of anchored in that, there are a list of specific area plans or land use plans. Um, the East Lawrence Neighborhood Revitalization Plan, the Inverness Park District Plan, Oriad Neighborhood Plan. There are also um, topic plans that are resource plans to Plan 2040, so the Lawrence Climate Protection Plan, the Housing Market Analysis, Transportation 2040, which is currently being updated. So we will move back and forth um, among these plans as they're relevant to our topics, but we will always be working um, within Plan 2040 and the strategic plan and as we do downtown work within the downtown plan. So the downtown Lawrence plan adopted in 2021 and the guiding principles within this plan are to strengthen downtown as a destination, to leverage the riverfront, to balance historic preservation with infill development, to maintain downtown as a civic and cultural heart of Lawrence and to reinforce downtown as an economically thriving district. I'm gonna ask you to take a look at the um, colored corridors in the map on the left side of this slide, the functional sub areas for the downtown plan. In a minute, when we talk about making some changes to the downtown district, we'll be talking about um, what do we need to do to help uh, more closely implement the functional sub areas in the downtown Lawrence plan, not expanding the boundaries of downtown, but working within those. Okay, so part two current land development code analysis. So this is where we've gone in um, and we have line by line, word by word, um, read the current code a few times and um, thought about how it relates to the plans, how it relates to um, best practices, how it relates to um, the city's charter and how regulation is done in Kansas and the case law that's out there um, surrounding zoning and development. And um, we have come up with a set of recommendations for changes to make um, across the current code. Some of this will roll into um, things that are not in the current code that we need to add. And so we're kind of roll those all together and talk about them. Again, this is pretty high level. Um, so when you see the code assessment, you will see more detail added to all of these concepts. So we think first off that there are opportunities to consolidate some of the residential zone districts um, to better reflect neighborhood character and plan 2040 recommended densities. And I apologize for the capitalization problem on plan 2040. Don't look at that. Um, We think that There are a lot of residential districts, Um, they don't all align as well as they can um, with what's going on in the city and where the city wants to go going forward. And so we'll make some recommendations um, about how to bring those together and how to rethink them to make them um, work better with plan 2040 we think there's an opportunity to convert most of the existing commercial districts into um, a series of probably five mixed use districts, each reflecting a different scale of development. So the lowest scale would be like a mixed use neighborhood district um, and the highest scale might be, you know, a mixed use highway commercial, maybe a little less than that, We'll we'll see. We don't always wanna mix residential into all kinds of commercial. Um, but we will have a discussion about how those things come together um, to create a more walkable community. Um, so as we think about where people can go with and without cars, we think about bringing places that we want to be closer together. As I mentioned on the last slide, um, we're going to look at expanding the downtown zone district content to better reflect the downtown plan. It's got a level of nuance to it. The plan does that's not reflected in the zone district. So we're gonna work to bring additional standards um, or tailored standards into the downtown district um, to make sure that it's more clearly implementing the plan. We think we're gonna have a conversation um, with you and with the community about where we go to update the IBP district. Um, what is it, what is the business part going forward? What was it when the code was adopted? What is it going forward? Um, And what are some of the changes that we're going to see kind of, you know, moving into the future um, with commercial development, industrial development, light industrial development, and how do we update the districts and the code to reflect what we think that's going to be? Um, And then finally, along the zone district tune-up, we think there's an opportunity to bring the GPI and the H districts together to create a public or civic mixed use district. We're seeing um, this take place across a lot of communities. This is an opportunity to allow some of the institutions in Lawrence Um, to branch out and to um, bring some of the other uses and some residential development onto their site, typically in places where there is some extra land to do those things, um, to create both lively activity centers, but also to add in some housing where there are opportunities to do that and civic institutions that might be willing to add housing in. So next up, we do zone districts, then we look at uses and kind of the way we organize the code is is from biggest picture to most detailed picture. So we have our zone district thoughts in place, then we take a look at the use regulations, the use allocations, so what uses are allowed where, and the standards related to individual uses. So we're gonna recommend consolidating the current two use tables. There's a residential use table and a non-residential use table, and, In our drafting experience, the minute you start separating something that's pretty much the same thing, you're going to find changes um, across that regulatory um, process that will create conflicts that we don't want to see. So we bring everything together into a single use table. And when it's all in one place, we look across the categories and the descriptions to make sure that we have a code that's kind of grounded in today and moving forward with where we think development's gonna be has enough flexibility to it that you can interpret new uses into it without that being a problem. And um, We know uses grow and change over time, things that we didn't think we'd see 10, 15 years ago, you know, we have coming forward now, things that we don't anticipate now, we know will come forward in 10 or 15 years and we wanna make the code able to accommodate that. Um, then we go across the new table and we make sure that um, the right uses are allowed in the right zone districts through the right process. Um, One of the things that we talk about within this code are the processes. Um, We've heard about um, updating the processes and streamlining the processes, and that is a function of both updating the standards and updating the processes. So if we wanna make a use easy to approve, then we have to start in the use table and with the use standards um, to make sure that we're clear and that we are creating standards that the community agrees to um, so that we're not having um, to have a series of public hearings about something that is different than where our expectations were. So we do that as the basics in the districts and the uses. We are going to rep- recommend separating accessory uses out of the main table. Um, accessory uses are something that we see you know, more and more of. Um, we see someone coming in and saying, I want to do this and this on my property. And um, old school accessory uses are not nearly as nimble as we need them to be. Temporary uses, um, there are some temporary use standards, and we will make sure that they're located in the code where people can find them. And then last but not least, we go in and we update the use specific standards. Within the current LDC, um, this is going to be a fun job. The use specific standards are a nice mix of use standards and site standards and structure standards. And uh, one of our goals is going to be to separate those concepts. We want to keep the use related standards in the use section, but we want to think about site and structure standards either in a zone district or as part of the site and structure standards. It's challenging to regulate a use by the amount of space that it takes up because the minute that use is gone, you have a gap and it was it was tied back to that one use and you may not be able to refill it. So we're gonna look at doing this differently um, and still meet the character needs or the infill needs of the community. So that's districts and uses. I'm gonna move on. I'm gonna take a break at the end of this section and see if you guys have questions and then we'll keep going. So other big category within the Land Development Code is development standards. Pardon me. So these are standards that cross-cut zone districts and apply to uses like outdoor lighting and landscaping and parking. These are these bigger concepts that we apply to structures and uses. So one of the conversations that we want to get into with both steering committee and the community is, do we need to tailor some development standards? Do we need different parking standards in different parts of town? Do we need different landscaping standards for residential development versus mixed use development? Are we in places where one size fits all standards aren't working for us? And if they're not, how do we back into uh, more nuanced standards for the city? We know from plan 2040 that Lawrence wants to focus on infill and redevelopment and an infill and redevelopment um, zoning and subdivision code is different than a greenfield code in that it accounts for redevelopment taking place on a site that already has structures and features. And so one of the things that we need to think about is if someone is rebuilding on the site where the structure's already there um, or where the parking is already there or the trees are already there, how do we make sure that we aren't coming in and taking out what is useful about that site, but we're still encouraging redevelopment or infill to take place on that site. So we don't assume a condition of a, lot that's been fully graded and scraped, we assume a condition with some um, existing things that might stay where they are. And what we do is we get into the code and we figure out different um, applicability triggers or different sliding scale revi- uh, requirements and also ways to be flexible. Um, so if we're thinking about a site where you know we want to let someone put a restaurant in um, but they're not going to be able to accommodate the parking. They might be a space or two short. We look at creating um, an administrative adjustment process. So we don't shut down the new development, the new restaurant, um, but instead we figure out a way to be a little more flexible and get it in there. That's the second bullet too: enhance flexibility. We enhance flexibility by doing the tailored standards. So recognizing that different things in different places you know, can have specific standards, but we also try to create two or three processes that are really uh, based in flexibility. And so maybe that's administrative adjustment for small adjustments, something up to 15%. And maybe that is um, a larger deviation process for adjustments that um, are site specific and might be, you know, 15 to 20%. We'll talk about where, you know, where the city's comfort zone is with putting some of those changes in. We know as community becomes more dense, um, as different types of development about each other, um, development type transitions are important. So if we're putting in um, a mixed use structure next to a single family residential structure, what has to happen to make those two be good neighbors? How do they work nicely together? So we put transitional standards in there that talk about the, Um, Spacing and the height of the taller building and the landscaping and screening that goes in on the site, and we try to think about those places where things come together, and so they can rub along nicely instead of grind along unhappily. We want to go in and integrate and sort of raise the bar on site and structure standards. Um, Lawrence has a has a variety of standards um, for site layout and for structural design in a lot of different places, um, in the code, in some in the plans, um, some in the design standards. We want to bring everything together and figure out how to put together a more cohesive set of standards um, and a more predictable set of standards that allow people to proceed through the process. We will work on refining the parking standards to implement plan 2040. Um, We anticipate that starts with a discussion about what are our goals with parking? Um, Why are we parking things on lots, parking cars on lots? Why are we regulating for parking? Is this something the community wants to do moving forward? Um, And then finally, um, in the design standards, we're gonna support the multimodal transportation system with a set of mobility and connectivity standards. So these talk about how we link together the different ways that we move people around within the community. I got a couple more slides here, I think on um, these bigger changes and then we'll stop for a minute. So our third, fourth big category, protect environmentally sensitive areas and incorporate sustainability into the code, right? So we want to make sustainable development outcomes a default setting of the land development code, not an add-on, not a nice benefit, but the way the city looks at development. And what is important about this is that when we look at more compact development and more mixed use development and more sustainable development, these all come together. So some of the things that we will do within the zone districts um, to look towards compact walkable development um, and mixing uses and people will move us toward more sustainable development outcomes. So that's kind of in the DNA of the code. Second up, when we're looking for um, particularly sustainable outcomes, we look to remove regulatory obstacles. Um, sometimes, particularly in older codes, things that we typically regulate get in the way of sustainability. Um, so we might have something as simple as a setback standard that prohibits um, somebody from putting, um, you know, a geothermal setup on their property, or even just, you know, some solar panels on their property because they can't, you know, exceed the roof height or um, simple things are usually um, the easiest barriers to get rid of. So we go through, um, we kind of do an assessment of what's in the way of achieving sustainability, and then we look at flexible ways to allow more sustainability to be built into the development. One of the things that Plan 2040 talks about quite a bit is the use of water in development. And um, we will talk about, you know, where water gets used in a development, what we want to get to with updated standards um, that think about water in a different way, and how much of that lives in the land development code. Um, just, you know, you all may well know, our, you know, typically our biggest use of water on a lot is for landscaping. For, you know, particularly for a residential lot. And so um, when we talk about smaller lots and when we talk about more multifamily development or more attached development, we are also talking about reducing our water usage. So we'll have a more broad conversation about water um, and how we think about that in terms of development and how we want these standards um, to reflect a greater understanding of water. Um, and, you know, perhaps a little more respect for how we use our water moving forward. Excuse me. Um, the code currently has um, some environmentally sensitive land standards and Um, Plan 2040 identifies a variety of updates that need to be made to those standards. And so um, we'll be working through environmentally sensitive lands and updating those across um, a range of topics that the community wants to see. Similarly, we'll be looking through um, the landscaping standards to make sure that we're including key environmental priorities in there. There's of course the water piece I just talked about. Um, There's also um, needs to be discussion about using Um, more native plants, about using, um, you know, different irrigation systems. That does take me back to water about what we want our landscaping to do. Um, And so we'll talk about that. And then finally, um, we will be adding some standards or suggesting some standards um, that regulate development on steep slopes. So so this is the first cut in environmentally sensitive areas and sustainability. Um, We know a lot of these trickle down to very specific regulations, and, and we will be kind of refining as we go. So we're starting at a higher level. And then as we start drafting, we make sure that the individual concepts that we wanna see get built into the regulations. So I'm gonna stop for a second because I've been lecturing at you for almost a half an hour now. I'm gonna see if anyone has questions about the basics that we're talking about just within updates to
3: the code.
4: You can you tell me if it fits in here or not? Um, one of the first slides you had up was talking about downtown and uh, was looking through the priorities that you'd mentioned. And I was looking for a specific a line that talked about the uses in downtown. There's a growing question um, in our community about the makeup of downtown. Um, is it an entertainment district? Is it uh, a retail center? Is it? And what's the right mix of those things Um, I wonder if that's a question that should be considered in this work or if that's, that falls to something else.
2: Yeah, so we'll take our guidance from the downtown Lawrence plan, Um, but as we update the use table, and I think that question will probably be um, answered in two parts. So we'll first think about how we're going to integrate the downtown plan um, into the downtown zone district. What does it end up looking like? And then um, if we create probably sub areas within that downtown zone district, then we will make sure that we're in the use table, allocating the uses across that. And I think that's gonna give us an opportunity to have that discussion. You know, What are the uses that we wanna allow? Um, what do we wanna do when we're being creative? How do we keep downtown You know, as our economic generator? Where are we going with that? So that is definitely gonna be open for discussion and, and for feedback.
4: Okay, thanks. Um, yeah. Flash forward a couple of slides. There was uh, one line item in one of those slides that talked about um improving standards. Um it, you, the note was to improve, raise the bar um on site and structure standards. Can you give an example of what, what you mean when you say that?
2: Yep, so site and structure standards are um where we where we keep those requirements um for um what the site layout needs to look like and to the extent that we're doing structure design that goes in there because we are moving from um, the the older code that isn't as focused on infill and redevelopment into this kind of LDC version 2.0, which is going to take us through greenfield development, but also through infill and redevelopment. We want to make sure in that kind of raising the bar category that we make make it clear and make it easy. If you're doing infill or you're doing redevelopment, you've got you know these street standards, you've got these infrastructure standards, you've got these landscaping standards. So a more robust set of standards that addresses all of the types of development that you might see in Lawrence going forward will make it um, easier for everyone to share the same expectations about what needs to happen on the site. Similarly, as we're moving more into the, you know, infill and redevelopment category, that's where we come back to the transition place and, and what does it look like um, for development to live together. So some of that we'll do through transitions, but that relates a lot to how stuff transitions to residential development. <laughs> some of the, you know, how does stuff live together happens in those um, site and structure standards. So. That will pull some from subdivision, it will pull some from design standards, it will pull some um, from the different zone districts right now, and the goal will be to make that a place where you can kind of one-stop shop for, I'm doing my development, what does it need to do?
4: That's a big topic. Thank you for that. I think Josh has got his hand up.
5: Uh, my question is, is, how do you plan on reaching out to the neighborhoods to ensure that uh, uh, all the different neighborhood associations will ha- uh, have a voice to be able to, because it's like each neighborhood association and neighborhood is different and has different views on a lot of different things in relation to the code.
2: Yep, so that is um, definitely a conversation that we've heard and that we, we understand. And um, We also understand that there are different Kind of umbrella groups for the neighborhood organizations. And so first and foremost, we wanna make sure that um, everybody's invited into the process. So neighborhood group or not neighborhood group, individual homeowner, whoever. So a lot of what we do is open meetings to whoever wants to show up. As we move into the um, drafting of the zone districts and the use standards and some of the site and structure standards, those places where the neighborhoods are going to feel the most possibility for change, either within the neighborhood or around the neighborhood, um, we'll make sure that we tailor our outreach so that we have multiple opportunities um, for neighborhood organizations to join us. Um, I don't think that we, you know, we have any preferences about who we hear from, what we wanna make sure is we have enough opportunity to hear from everyone that wants to be involved in the process. I think I'm gonna turn back to you with a question. Do you have suggestions? Um, sounds like this is something you're kind of thinking about?
5: Uh, there is a second thing. And the other thing I was gonna heavily suggest, because I do, and I'm com- this is coming from uh, being a, uh, on a board for a neighborhood association where I live. Uh, the other thing is having requiring for certain things I think it would be good to have require a, a neighborhood association meeting with for certain types of developments because so often I've seen in my neighborhood and other neighborhoods where we get pushed aside and it really causes so much issues uh, throughout the process and down the line
2: yeah. And so that's actually one of our questions for the um, end of the presentation this evening. That was one of the things that we flagged in the procedures. Um, is there um, a good way to build in a more formalized neighborhood meeting process, particularly before the big application? So rezoning application or condition use permit or something along those lines. So that's something we plan on exploring through this process.
0: Other questions? Elizabeth, as she goes through this, knowing a 60 page document is coming, for yeah, I
2: know it's so exciting. <laughs> Anyone wants it before New Year's, you know, just so you can read it over the
6: yeah, okay, all right, carry on
2: here, hold
4: on. I see Marcy's got her hand up. Oh,
6: hi, Marcy. Well, and I'm just wondering if you could define for us the differences between infill and redevelopment. Um, does infill have to be on a vacant? property? Um, If you could give us a little more information about those terms.
2: Yeah. So I think um, historically infill, like you suggest, is a vacant property that's hard to develop. It gets overlooked. It's got development going on around it, but it's weird for some reason, or often has title problems or some something, and it doesn't get developed. Um, In the past, that's been different from redevelopment, which is development on a site that gets changed. But what we're seeing is they have kind of just morphed together into changes that we see in built areas. And the only time within a code context that we might want to treat them differently is if there is something in the code that's keeping the infill lot from getting developed. So if we've created setback standards that make it virtually impossible to develop something on the lot, we might wanna take a look at adjusting those standards. Often though, we find that, you know, if infill standards are a problem for, if uh, the setback standards are a problem for an infill lot, they can be a problem for redevelopment too. So I'm gonna leave them fuzzy for right now, if that's okay with you and the group. And when we get into some actual code language, we might decide we wanna carve some off Actually defined infill, but we might have a bigger category where we say, hmm, if you're something that is redeveloping or hasn't developed, and you're in, you know, a mostly developed area, here are your rules. So let's see if we have a need for that distinction. Sometimes I get really weird and, you know, a little too dialed into the words. I'm sorry, uh, lawyer, for too long. Um, so as part of my recovery process, I'm just gonna say, yeah, you know, this is a category. Let's see where it goes
6: that's helpful um an example earlier um, in our community was that when we required a uh lot to be at least 60 foot wide it didn't address all the vacant lots in some of the older neighborhoods that were 50 foot so anyway that that explanation yeah
0: well, so you
3: needed it though. oh
2: we heard up to up to fifty foot existing lots, and then we lost
6: Okay. Okay. Um, that um, anyway, just that that was an example of something that wasn't working. Um, and I I appreciate the kind of nebulousness at this point.
2: <laughs>
6: we'll be fuzzy for now. But that's kind
2: of I like that example because that's the kind of place where we want the code to get out of its own way. Right? So we'll talk about those things that keep stuff from developing as we go forward. <clears throat> Commissioner Finkeldi, anybody else?
0: I'm looking around. I think we're ready to go on.
2: Okay, let's do part three, <laughs> Code Foundation. So these are these are some of the um, issues in organization and drafting. Um, so one of the things that we want to do, okay. okay. I don't know why the screen sharing thing came back. Kyle, any suggestions? Is it showing up on yours too?
7: It looks fine on our end.
2: Yeah, okay, all right. The The little menu.
7: Yeah,
2: that's the, maybe it'll go away. Anyhow, drafting for predictability. So one of the things that we noticed um, in the current code and, um, you know, it um, it is something that we see in codes of, of the age of your code and older, Uh it's a lot of discretion in there. Um, A lot of places where you can hit unpredictability pretty quickly because someone has to make a determination or because um, the language is is, um, not as clear as it could be. Um, And so as we go back through um, and do clean up on the language of the code. We we want predictability to be our end result to the extent that it can. You know, we always have to balance that with an understanding that someone's going to have a site specific situation that needs to be addressed, or that we may not um, know full well how a certain standard is going to play out over time. But um, for the most part, the goal is predictability. So. We want to get in and eliminate unnecessarily complicated and legalistic language. People can get stuck in places where the code is um, drafted that way um, in a complicated way. Sometimes, you know, code drafters, and I've been guilty of this more than once. Um, make something more complicated than it needs to be. And then it could end up in um, multiple differing interpretations down the road. So when we draft language and share it with you guys, um, one of our questions is gonna be, did you understand it? Our feelings are not hurt if you don't understand it. In fact, it'd be super helpful if you tell us something doesn't make sense, um, then we can go in and rework it. Um, we're gonna try to replace subjective with objective standards. So subjective is um, use of things like complementary um, or is something where this has to happen if the director makes a determination about it and there are no criteria for that determination. Objective is, you know, you've got to paint everything green. Um, We will not put that standard in there, but that's more measurable than it has to be complementary. Objective is also um, a set of review criteria. So even if we don't know what the actual um, standard needs to be, we have a consistent method of getting there. We're going to try to provide greater clarity. Um, Sometimes things get muddled because they aren't um, drafted all the way out to the end. So we'll make sure that um, we think something all the way through and then we will have um, staff test the language with us and we'll ask you guys to test some of the language with us. Um, there is some duplicated information in the code. Um, I'm going to kind of take us a little sideways here. So sometimes codes duplicate information because we tend to think of them as books and we think of them as old school encyclopedias. And so Someone will say, well, I'm just going to repeat this here so you don't have to go back four pages and look at it there. Um, So Lawrence is going to codify the land development code at the end of this process. It'll be fully electronic um, and it'll be searchable. And so we will take advantage of that searchability by removing duplicative or redundant information and replacing it with a hot link. So someone can just jump back and forth um, or search the document to find the information they're looking for. Um, And then finally, we're gonna work to reconcile um, internal inconsistencies, all things that get us to um, an outcome that we're not looking for. So we've also been tasked with bringing forward a more user-friendly code. So moving it into um, an electric codification service is going to be really helpful, but that's not all that we can do to get to a user-friendly code. We can use um, clear and repetitive organization so that you have uh, some understanding about how content is going to be organized and you can um, gather some information about how to look for things Um, We can improve the document and page layout. So if you look at this slide, um, the code on the left is current code, which is nice and colorful. Um, We have the blue going there, so that's good. Um, We're going to move over to um, a few more tables and a few more illustrations. Um, We might not use the teal that we've got going here um, because we're going to use Lawrence colors. But um, we will take things out of lists and move them into tables and we will... Um, try to graphically illustrate places where we should be thinking three dimensionally and this helps people who are new to the code understand it more so it helps um, conversations between staff and applicants because we're able to reduce a concept to an image and we can look at that image and figure out are we measuring this roof in the same place. Um, We're going to relocate some of the supporting information outside of the code. Most codes these days um, don't have some of the administrative material, don't have some of the submission material. Um, There may be some bits and pieces of that needs to come out. It can land on the website. It won't be going away. Um, We'll be collecting it and working with staff to give it a different location. But these days with electronic forms and submissions, we don't need to keep all that information in the code. And then finally, we group and update all the definitions and measurements. So definitions and measurements are dull, boring stuff in the code, and they are foundational to that code working properly. Um, We want everyone to measure things the same way. So we give you instructions and graphics for measurement. We want everyone to define things the same way. Um, And so some of the easiest ways to get a code to predictability are to get good definitions and measurements in the code. So that will be something that we actually spend a lot of time on. As we draft each section, we will update the measurements and definitions that go with that section. So if we do zone districts and uses first, um, that means we're going to be doing all the definitions for yards and for setbacks and for height um, and the measurements accordingly. So we're also gonna work on restructuring and streamlining the development procedures. A Couple things we're gonna do to orient code users. um, And we know that we have a range of code users. We talked about this at some of our kickoff meetings. We have, you know, code users that are super sophisticated. They're in and out of code all the time. They really know where everything is and where they're going and they might want one piece of information. So we wanna make that easy for them to find. We also have, People that just use the code to figure out if they can do an accessory dwelling unit or just use the code to get their one family restaurant opened. Um, So we want to make sure that we've got the code available and accessible to the different ranges of users. Um, So we'll add um, more tables, we will add flowcharts, we will use the consistent drafting approach, we'll use our ability to link um, definitions back to the information. We will add the modifications and adjustments, um, and we will add the um, administrative approval, um, I'm sorry, to allow departures. We'll have a conversation about whether or not to um, allow that sort of larger change um, to the code. Some other things that are gonna happen in the procedural section will be a discussion, uh, likely at steering committee and also with staff about where do people get jammed up in the process and why? Um, so we we ask, you know, to go through an application start to finish and ask questions about, you know, is the city requesting too much information up front? Are we making applications unnecessarily expensive for applicants when we can move some of that information off later? Um, are applicants getting tripped up because of multi-step processes that aren't clear? Can we take steps out of processes? Um, are development approvals taking a long time to approve because we have things like uses um, that just should really be approved administratively going through a higher level process. Um, so we we take procedures and we look at everything that's attached to them to try to find out sort of what's going on. Um, and are there places where it is important to streamline and where we should? Are there places where it's important to get more input. And how do we want to do that? So a balance between what should move through quickly and and what should get a lot of touch from the community. And those are all conversations we have when we get to drafting the procedural section. And then finally, we have three, what we've labeled for now special topics. And we think these are cross-cutting, right? They relate to drafting design standards and development standards. They relate to zone districts. They relate to process. Um, They kind of cross the entire code. Um, So first is zoning for affordable housing. And as we discussed in some of our kickoff meetings, some of it's zoning for more housing, Um, not necessarily definitionally affordable housing, but, you know, expanding the market. Um, Then there's also a conversation about how do we provide housing that is um, affordable to a certain income range within the city. We think there's a discussion around drafting for equity. Um, There are equity issues in how we design standards and equity issues in how we design processes. And we want to make sure that this is um, a conversation that we have kind of at a higher level um, instead of looking at a process and trying to figure out you know, how we can include more people in it. Let's figure out who and how we want to include and how we want to reach them and make things easy at the outset. And then we kind of bake that into the rest of the code. Um, And then we finally have um, a third special topic. And even though we we had a section where we talked about this um, sustainability, environmental sustainability is a cross-cutting topic. And so Um, In addition to making sure that it is built into the code, uh, we wanna make sure that we look at things through our sustainability lens. So, um, you know, it could be that as we review sections, some of our bigger questions are, what are we doing to affordable housing? How are we addressing equity? And is this going to get us a sustainable outcome? Um, So we'll do it in the drafting and we'll do it in the review process. So I think that is it, that is it. Um, and you know, again, we'll build all of these out. We'll give you um, more explanation. Um, we'll give you some examples. And what we want to make sure is that we've highlighted everything we're going to touch on, and then we're going to move into the drafting process where we will drill down into all of these um, more deeply. So before we go to questions, let me see were there any any further questions um, related to, um, the code fundamentals, the organization and the drafting or the special topics.
3: Any questions?
0: <clears throat> Don't see any. Thank you. Elizabeth, okay. look forward to the full the full draft.
3: Okay. So let's do
2: some of the key questions. And um, So these are some of the things um, that we saw in the code that we're going to need some more information about um, before we can get to some meaningful regulations. And so we wanted to start, you know, seeing if you all have some input tonight, we'll move these questions out to, you know, bigger community outreach. Um, We will likely put a survey together that goes with the code assessment and we'll figure out, you know, how we want to ask these questions in survey form. Um, You know, but the first thing that we wanted to start with is, character um, in Lawrence is really meaningful and it could be neighborhood character. It could be area character. Um, But, you know, when we look through plan 2040, there are special places um, and they are built in a certain way. And we wanted to ask when you think about what character is in Lawrence, um, could be in a neighborhood, could be in the downtown. Are you thinking about um the architecture are you thinking about the scale are you thinking about the time in which it developed in lawrence are you thinking about where it's located um what does what does character mean what would you guide us with um the things that make one neighborhood different from another or one part of the city different from another <clears throat> or the things that make an area the same right so my neighborhood is all you know uh one story whoops Post World War II homes, um, and that is the character of my neighborhood. So, what are some things that just are top of mind to you as we're thinking about character?
7: Interesting, as you're going through that list, I said yes to everything. Okay. Which doesn't, which is remarkably unhelpful for you.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it isn't. I don't think it has to be. It. It's actually um, more comforting to me that you said yes to all of them than you saying, I don't even know what character is. So um, that's a starting place for us that you you hone in on some things. Anything more more definitional to you than anything else? Or is it? do we look at things in a whole?
4: It seems, it seems very situational. And I think that um, each neighborhood might give more weight to any one of those characterizations than another. Um, I guess that's I, what I found. Yeah, I also don't think
3: it's stagnant. Okay. Mm, good point. I, I think it, it, it changes with neighborhoods over time. Okay. Now, okay. I think it,
0: you know, it might, I mean, that comment makes me think a little bit of the number three question we're gonna talk about in a little bit about how, how it changes over time. Um, and what? how's that important to us? But generally, I think about, I mean, some of those things that popped out is certainly architecture and and, um, and kind of well, I don't know um, feel of the neighborhood doesn't doesn't say much, but um, you know, I mean, you often can go from one part of once to another, and you'll just feel different about what's there and some of that's architecture and some of it is um what's density yeah density and, and, and mixed use and
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Josh has his hand up <clears throat> uh
5: for coming from my, uh, my view from where uh, my neighborhood that's kind of uh, that's like uh, it's really fixed on what what uh, defines the neighborhood me, what how I would view different neighborhoods, how they're defined because you have the architectures, you have how the neighbors interact, uh, uh, how that uh, it's made up because there's so many neighborhoods where it's just uh, either single family dwellings or multi level family dwellings, or you have a mix of just all over the board. So,
2: what I hear you guys saying. Um, just from these early responses is that there might be a different um, set of criteria that define the neighborhood character based on the different neighborhoods, right? So we might have to check in with the neighborhoods about what they feel their criteria is. And Marcy's got a hand up.
6: Street layout. Yeah um is one of the things so certainly is it a grid pattern Mm -hmm. um or is it cul-de-sac makes a difference um I think part of neighborhood character in Lawrence is how people use their outside space um whether it's grass or gardens or um
3: storing things So one of the
2: things that that our group, that the clearing team talked about with staff early on in the process is how to reach out to neighborhoods and um, create an opportunity to get individualized feedback. And I think this character question um, might be a way um, that we do that we had, and and this is kind of, I'm switching hats on you guys, but you know, one of <laughs> our roles here together is to talk about how to get the community involved. And one of the things that we talked about um, that had been um, successful um, on a previous project was allowing um, individual neighborhood groups to do their own meeting with a preset box of materials. And um, what we might talk about doing is you know, figuring out a way to help neighborhoods tell us about their view of their own character and putting together a neighborhood meeting box for them um, so they can get together, talk about it and report back to us um, because that understanding of that character is going to make a great difference in how we can draft regulations that um, appropriately work within the different parts of the city.
8: Well, one place we've been seeing conflict pop up is when there's a requirement um, with a new site plan to bring things up to the current standards. And quite often that doesn't fit with the neighborhood It's happening yet. One recent one was the size of a turnaround at the end of a street, which under the current code has to be like 60 feet or something. But where it was located, it just doesn't work there because mm-hmm. of the historical pattern of how mm-hmm. that neighborhood was mm-hmm. built. So somehow the code has also got to take into account, if we have standards, there has to be some way that they can account for the character of the existing neighborhood yeah. that we're trying to
3: apply them to. Yep. Agree.
6: Thank you. Go ahead, Marcy. So I also um, saw that we were talking about parking standards. Mm-hmm. And um, I live in a neighborhood where many of the properties were developed um, when people used the hitching post in the front rather than had a um, driveway or garage. I also live on one of the blocks in that neighborhood that was built the the alley was um take or the space where the alley should have been um no longer exists. I'll remember the word for vacated. that. Vacated. It was vacated. It vacated. Okay. So um there is no possible way for those houses, because of the slope of the hill, to have parking. So the parkings in that case, parking standards may be need to be different um, because of the character and um, mm-hmm. development of a neighborhood. Mm-hmm.
3: That makes sense.
2: So we're, we're already starting to link character to some of the development standards that we could come up with here in, in a way that um, makes them more tailored um, to where they're being applied. So I'm not going to keep us on this one um, because we've got a few more to go through and then we can talk about what we're up to next. <laughs> so one of our roles um, in working with you all as a steering committee is to um, bring you research or information um, about what's going on in the world of code writing or what best practices are. And one of the topics that we've keyed in on um, is, the, is the future of Commercial and industrial business parks um, and the IBP district. Um, And this may be a big part of what we do. It may not be a big part of what we do. But at this point in the project, we think that it's a conversation we want to have. And so um, we wanted to, you know, see what kind of thinking you've been doing about, you know, is that development um, pattern successful? Um, Our business parks, you know, what we see continuing in the future in Lawrence, are we switching to a different pattern Um, kind of what is what is the future of that heavier commercial um, or lighter cleaner industrial development and what might you be curious about in um, thinking about how we change up that district going forward.
3: not sure. I
0: I don't know what I don't know in this. Fair,
3: that's totally fair.
2: Yeah, okay.
0: I mean, I, I do think we see a, it seemed to me that you know, we used to have a, we have a much more, our code kind of thinks about, you know, industrial versus office and, you know, very distinct, whereas I think as we think about tech jobs and we think about some of that there's a lot more mojo of those two mm-hmm. where well, it, it's harder to see that what, what's industrial versus what is a tech mm-hmm. job which is which, you know business fault um,
9: Although with with Panasonic coming that may change that dynamic some because what is industrial and what is tech is in a lot of circumstances I think going to be very overlapping yeah so I guess well, I don't know what I don't know, how does Panasonic and the resulting industry around that change what Lawrence needs in terms of commercial and industrial development? Yeah,
10: and I, I think those are those are great, and I think there's a lot to learn. I think the problem we have uh, historically, both with commercial and industrial, is unlike residential the absorption rate is so much slower so that a design industrial or business park uh by the time it even gets close to filling out it's uh it's (laughs) out of out of i mean it's out of trend i mean what they're doing there is no longer what anybody wants to do so um you know, I, I think, you know, what what I'm curious about is is how people are designing and, and industrial like with the Panasonic deal. I mean, that's that's going to be bigger footprints. Right. So that's that's kind of a, a standalone deal. I'm thinking in terms of our business park office location, smaller industrial stuff. How do how, do, how are other people designing that to be flexible? <laughs> with the changes in trends of how people are wanting to office, uh, in, you know, uh, you know it, it, in one sense, everything's cyclical, so maybe if they do take so long to, to, <laughs> to develop that, they'll come back, but I, we haven't seen much of that, but you know, that's kind of what I'm curious about. I mean, the big footprint stuff is, is what it is. I, you know, I mean, and with the Panasonic deal, it's going to be a uh, seven to ten year window of, of filling that stuff out. But I'm thinking in terms of, I mean, we all know of the one IBP place in town that has caused us a lot of conversation and a lot of concern that we haven't figured out how to deal with. But it's a place that nobody wants to go build an office building anymore. So what do we do about that?
0: I'm not sure everyone knows what you're talking about. So bus spot? Yeah, that,
10: you know, I'm Legends Drive and off WatKarusa Drive back up sure. in there. Yeah. Okay.
8: To, yeah. Is there a way to make the code flexible enough so we can address what Phil's bringing up? Instead of having to do conditional zoning for everybody that wants to come in, can we build in more flexibility when we have like a business park that allows a greater range of uses or or just figure out which ones are just a no-go for particular spaces? But how can we change it without having to go back through this whole process? Start over again and
2: Yeah, uh, I think I'm, we can do that. Go ahead.
11: I kind of am thinking back to when I was on the chamber board, we did a targeted industry study
3: mm-hmm.
11: where when I was thinking about business parks, kind of what industries and chambers are trying to recruit and what our recruitment process looks like. And so I would think that maybe you would have at least consider that what industries are coming, whether it's a R&D for a... Uh, pharmaceutical company, if it's industrial ground, or if it's back office, you know, processing centers of some kind, I mean, that's, I haven't, I haven't looked at that targeted industry studies in a while, but uh, it seems to me like there was a you know, 10 or 20 different kind of industries that may
3: be considered it as in the zoning code too. I think that's a
2: that's a really good idea. I think we're circling. I'm listening to what you guys are talking about, and I'm Josh had his hand up for a second. So before I start wandering down an answer
5: here, uh, my question is uh, on those on those business parks and commercial zones. Are those currently generalized in certain areas, or are they considered on the more scattered areas throughout town?
2: Um, I think that that one, the IBP is just in um, the one business park location. So I don't think that's scattered through town. Am I correct? Yeah, that's correct. Thank you.
5: I was wondering what uh, East Hills is. Uh, is that classified uh, as something different? I do
9: so then, has a different um, zoning. It, it has industrial zoning, but it's not the IVP zoning district. So there are other areas um, in town where there is industrial zoning. Um, uh, those are uh, tend to be also more um, uh, specific locations, not necessarily scattered throughout town. Um, so we have the East Hill Business Park. Um, uh, Venture Park uh, also has industrial zoning, and then this. Um, uh, industrial uh, business park zoning, which is located uh, on the west side of town.
2: Thanks, Becky.
3: Okay, so
2: with the information that Becky just gave us, we have you know we have some more the more traditional industrial. we have the more traditional business park. We have a future that we know is changing. Um, we have the larger footprint, we have the smaller footprint, um, and we have the concerns of conditional zoning. Um, so I think without, you know, um, answering the question today, there's some, there are some research components to this. You know, wh- what industries are we looking at? Or, you know, what has the spinoff in other Panasonic communities been? Um, what is the future of, you know, industrial um, real estate design? Um w- what is, what is the amount of flexibility that we're looking for? Cause you know, as we cycle in and out, if something isn't being used for industrial space, do we want to think about how it can be used for some other you know, commercial space? Do we want to be super strict about those distinctions? Um, you know, often you find smaller industrial spaces being used for studio classes um, when they're not being used for industrial um, or, you know, when Kansas gets around to um, legalizing pot, all of your industrial becomes pot growing spaces. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's just something to look forward to. Um, so, so let's let's kind of back up and think about that um, piece of our community because, you know, some of, some of that is an economic anchor in the same way as downtown is. So we've got the, you know, where are we working? How are we working and where are we living pieces of this? So we'll do a little more research in that category.
10: Elizabeth, one other thing to think about is how the University of Kansas is getting into that same market space, as far as especially what they're building right now, and it's, they're putting in some uh, some of the same kind of spaces, commercial and IBP type uses on their new
8: on their new project. So,
2: is that some of the stuff they're doing over on West Campus?
8: Yes. Well, okay. The university will be very quick to say it's not us. It's KU Endowment. I'm sorry. <laughs> not yeah. the university.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> okay. Not us. It's them. Who has any control over endowment? They do what they want to do. Yeah. Okay. okay. Let me see. I'm going to pop the question back up and then I'll bring it down so we can talk about it. So this is we're moving on to question three, which um, whoops. Okay, so question three. um and we we kind of we pulled this into the neighborhood character conversation, which was great earlier. Um, how do we start to get better coordination between historic preservation um, and infill or redevelopment? Um, and I think I have a I have maybe a question here. For you guys, do we do we not think that they can live together? Is like is historic, just too challenging to put neighbors in, or do we? You know, I realize the importance of historic preservation and historic um, structures to Lawrence. Does it does it take primacy over redevelopment? Help me understand a little better what you guys see
6: happening there.
0: Well, that was a loaded question. <laughs> we can talk yeah. about mostly raise your hand first, so I'll Marcy, let her stop. Um,
6: the one comment I wanted to make is there might be a different um, answer to this, depending on whether it's an individual building that's listed or if it's in a historic district. Okay. okay. And so I think we might want to look at, um, you know, identifying the historic districts and approaching those a little okay. differently, um, okay. especially that now sense. that we don't have the state environs law.
2: That makes sense. Who else wants to add on to that?
0: Well, I, I mean, I would say in general, um, you know, one of the things at least I'm interested in looking at is we have, I don't know if you call it a parallel code between the store and the development code. And, and it's a, you know, you, if you're in the environs or you get in certain situations, you're basically running through two different processes. You're running through the development code and you're running th- through historic resources. And um, you sometimes, they're not always running concurrently and they're not always in in, in harmony, right? So the development code might say something, you need you need this sort of setback, or this sort of x and historic resources, saying, "Well, you can't have that. That doesn't match the character of the neighborhood. That's mm-hmm. not historic." Um, and so you have, you know, these kind of conflicting processes. Mm-hmm. Okay. It would seem to me that um, you know figuring out a way to marry those um, would be an accomplishment um, if we could figure out how to do that. Um, I guess that's a, a very broad answer, but others. I'd have is some it, is helpful that that would be
8: one attempt by the community to address that is the OREad design guidelines okay so RC can certainly fill you in on what happened with that process and what's involved with all that. but that took an entire neighborhood and looked at different sections of it for different types of um, design and uses and it also goes back to what it's been mentioned before about the current width requirements that things and setbacks don't work equally mm-hmm. at, in the historic, as you go through the historic development process of the city, there has to be some consideration for those different parts and time periods to make things
0: mesh. <clears throat> Josh is his hand up. And, then, and I would say... Um, last thing, I guess, and again, I think it ties into the redevelopment, you know, versus infill, um, infill slash redevelopment discussion, which again, um, you know, sometimes the code might make on paper, the redevelopment look very easy, but then historic resources makes it very difficult. Uh, and, and so you've, you've, um, Again, like I said, you have kind of these two parallel processes and even if you go down one route of looking at the code, if you're not paying attention to historic resources, you find yourself in a, a whole different position after you've started. Um, so making sure we get that together and clear and understandable from the get go. Mm-hmm.
3: Josh is standing Yeah.
2: Josh,
5: you want to say something? Uh, my uh, uh, to city staff, and then also to the committee that's present uh, there at the down there at the FBO. Uh, uh, my concern and also question is: Would it be smart to ha- have some uh, combination, but also separation, just to uh, make sure that uh, that over long term? No conflict of interest uh, occurs throughout the uh, occurs with the plan.
2: I'm sorry, Josh. Could you repeat the question? And I thought, was that for staff or for me?
5: Uh, it was for both. Okay. Staff
2: I'm sorry. One more time. <laughs>
5: uh, uh, my question is to, uh, is would it be smart to, uh, to combine, but also keep in mind that making sure to avoid any conflicts of interest or uh, or is there gonna be a process where in case that happens where there would be a uh, to separate that issue out and then figure a way to resolve it?
2: Can you or give me a little more information about who's, yet. whose conflicts are you thinking about?
5: Uh, I'm thinking between HRC and the uh, land use. <laughs> the
2: so what I what I understand uh, from staff is that um, that there's been a separate process to take um, the historic code um, forward and make updates to it. Um, we are going to be trying to figure out. How to do um, a more coordinated review process, um, and I think that might be um, something that kind of takes its own track of discussion um, because it will, I, I think, take some discussion to get there. Um, but I, I think for this evening, you guys are highlighting, you know, some of the things that get us to poor coordination between the two of them. Um, so. The conflicts, the processing, the timeline um, that whether it's an individual structure or a district um, all play into how um, we can get sideways over something that um, is coming in under both codes. So I think um, and I think Kyle wants uh-huh. to add something. Yeah.
12: I wanted to talk about the design guidelines Mm -hmm. I I didn't want to interrupt your (laughs) thank you but uh, um I'm the chairperson of the Oregon Residents Association and the Oregon design guidelines really clarified and systematized a bunch of things that so that we don't have as many conflicts as we used to and I haven't been before the HRC in seven or eight years probably at this point um and our it. It's helped our neighborhood become somewhat denser slowly and uh, achieve a lot of the goals, I think, that uh, Plan 2040 is looking for.
2: So it sounds like that might be part of our roadmap then, understanding how you guys managed to bridge <clears> the two codes.
3: <throat> okay, anybody else? OK, let's switch gears to process question. So um,
2: one of the things that we were looking at the code and wondering um, is whether or not adding a required neighborhood meeting would be helpful in some situations. Um, and we, we say this with some trepidation, actually. Um, because as you know as we think about um, development review and we think about um, you know who gets involved in processes and equity um, and housing and nimbyism um, sometimes it's that neighborhood meeting that's the beginning of um, a project getting shut down but um, there is a lot of value in listening to what the neighborhood thinks about a project Um, and getting that feedback before the project has really moved into the formal adoption process. And um, we wanted to hear, you know, if this conversation has been floated before and um, or if this is an interesting idea and if this is something we might want to think about doing.
0: Well, actually it had been floated before, Mm -hmm. one point. Back when I was on the planning commission, who mm-hmm. had been floated before, um, and it, it. Marcy might remember better than I. It, it, I forget. It. There was a lot of discussion about it, It ultimately, did not happen. But um, it was a well, um, well thought through process, I guess. But it, it, I think it's something to consider. But Marcy, did you want to jump in there? I saw you. I
6: just wanted to um, say that I think the wording, the more appropriate wording would be an invitation to a neighborhood meeting, rather than a required neighborhood meeting. One thing I don't want to see is the developer being required to hold a meeting and no one show up.
9: Mm -hmm.
6: So, um, If we do move forward with this, is there a way to make it a requirement, just as there's notification Mm
13: -hmm. that
6: there's some opportunity to request um, a meeting? And I think the other sort of difficult part about this is it may not be the whole neighborhood (laughs) that has a reaction Mm -hmm. to a particular um, proposal. and I know we discussed in the community one earlier um, just this week where um, the developer had concentrated on talking to the neighbors directly next door and never talked to the people across the street. So um, how to, do... so I think it's an invitation, but but neighborhood is is maybe not the only term we should think okay. about, Okay, it might be who the neighbors are that are um, noticed, do we have a reasonable, um, you know, uh, 400 feet or 600 feet that we're looking at that notification, and then um, is there a process that if you get that letter, um, that there's been a request that you have a way to um,
4: have more discussion before that planning commission meeting. Okay. Yeah. thank you. And we uh, regularly, predictably, um, planning commission will have people come to talk about an item and, and complain that it was they, they just learned about it the day before or the weekend before. And you know, I, I know that notifications have been sent and signs have been posted. So finding a way to help engage. Those that are interested, I think, would be worth doing. Um, having said that, um, I would want to be thoughtful about, as Marcy had said, that you know the requirement for a meeting that no one attends. I don't know that there's necessarily any value in that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, we have heard from others and other, other communities where this, where they do have a, a process that, not to extend or to add costs to a development, I want to be thoughtful about that as well but to have some predictable and loud opportunities for people to weigh in. That public process is important and it can help us get to better projects. It can help ease fears, it can help answer questions. Um, There's a lot of benefit in that, but um, I'm not sure I I know the exact answer to it other than to say, the question you asked Elizabeth is, is it worth looking at doing this? I think the answer to that question is absolutely yes. Let's see if we can find our way to to a, a method that helps engage people in a positive way, helps inform projects? So, so as
10: somebody who does the neighborhood meetings, uh, I, I'm totally against it. Um, and, and, I, and, and I can see maybe some specific circumstances where maybe it could be, but first of all, I don't, we don't need any more requirements. I mean, the the list of requirements that loaded up on a project is just uh, overwhelming as it is, Uh, and and there's a lot of them that need to go away, and we're going to get into that as we go through this process, And, and so we don't need any more. The second one is, which is interesting that is new, is we can hardly find a place to have them. Churches don't let us in anymore, school districts won't let us in the schools anymore, you know, so it's getting harder and harder to find some place that will at least let us get, you know, and have a place where we can get 20 or 30 people in there. Secondly, uh, if we do have a required neighborhood meeting, then those that show up to the neighborhood meeting, they're still gonna show up at the the planning commission and the city commission, and they're also gonna sit, stand there and say, I never heard of this before, even though we just talked to them 10 days earlier in a neighborhood meeting. And that's just the nature of the beast. So they're very unsuccessful from alleviating any neighborhood fears. Now, having said all that, if the designer of the development wants to do a really, really good job, they'll engage the neighbors early, early on to try to find out. And that's, and that's, that's what we try to do. And we try to do them in smaller groups of people and find out what their main concerns are, uh, and, and try to work around it. Um, doesn't make them go away. We, we still have all the same stuff show up uh, when that happens. And then the last point is, um, it is a meeting between the, today, now we could change this, it is a meeting between the design consultant and the neighborhood. There's There's no official record, there's no official action, there's, There's no documentation of what was said, what was promised, who on either side of it agreed to anything at all. And so, you know, uh, after the meeting's over with, all bets are off because you could be starting all over. And, And so, you know, it really carries no function other than, you know, if somebody wants to do a better job of designing, they would do something similar to that to learn how to design it better. But I see no end result benefit in benefiting the approval city process from having uh, required neighborhood meetings,
4: find myself thinking as you as you go through that. You know, someone who does design well, I think, is the way you described it, is going to engage. So, if there was a way to to formalize that which has already been in a great process mm-hmm. and capture and make it part of the record, so that when you show up in front of the planning commission, regardless what people might. Come and voice concerns about and say, look, we've done this. Here's the feedback. Here's either our answer to the concern or here's our response. You know, what we've done differently. Is... Wouldn't that be a benefit, though, if that, if that weighed?
1: Yeah. And, and we, we, you
4: know,
10: it, since we haven't done a lot of projects in recent history, we haven't been able to practice it yeah. as well as we should. But yeah. I do know that in, in other communities where we do neighbor, we just did one in, in Leewood and we did a neighborhood meeting. And uh, the neighborhood still hated it, but us being able to present exactly what the conversation was and have other people testify that that is, in fact, what did happen, carried a lot of weight with the, the governing body.
4: You're absolutely right. right. And it would,
0: right. Mm-hmm. In my, my experience of the Planning Commission, of course, this is back when we had a lot more projects going through, was we'd often get to a point where, you know, again, the, the, the neighbors and the developers never have spoken, and then they, in a meeting, a planning commission meeting, then we end up deferring it so they can meet and say, come back next month so you guys can meet. And then we, have, I mean, we had to hear it twice and we've lost the whole month. Yeah. Whereas if we could get it done early on.
4: And that's exactly you know, what and, I was thinking. Yeah.
0: yeah. I think someone told me that there was a, some code somewhere, it was if there was a neighborhood meeting, the planning commission can't defer it. And, well, I think, yeah. you know, they give us some, you know, but, give but, some incentive. But, but you also know
10: in a lot of instances there is no appeasement yes. at all. Oh, absolutely. Oh,
0: perfect world. you Everybody would be happy. This. <laughs> right. yes. Sometimes you just have to vote.
8: Yeah. yeah. If, I, if I could, I'd just like to throw out a couple of other issues around this, because it usually comes down to notice requirements, whether you have a meeting or not. A lot of the if the notice is required to the neighborhood organization, it's quite often nobody ever hears about it because that depends that that necessitates enough activity of that particular neighborhood to update the city website with the current contact who's actually going to send out information. Uh, the Planning Commission extended the notice area for written notice from 200 feet to 400 feet. 200 feet the protest petition area, and it, it was double for written notice. And it's worth talking about whether that's enough in some circumstances, depending on what the nature of the project project is. Maybe you know a larger project with more traffic. Maybe you need. We should be talking about letting more people know this is happening, not to necessarily require a meeting, but to have some place where they can see what's going on and it's easier to find the information and to maybe request a meeting um, if they do that, and maybe even with planning staff as part of it. But, and then you also have the issue of who are you sending notice to? Is it going to the addresses or is it giving going to the owner of the property because you get a list <laughs> of who owns the property and that's not necessarily who's there <clears throat> because a the majority of the residences in house in the, in the city now are rental. So you know who's actually getting notice and what what's it, what's the proper notice area for a particular type of project and then. Is that just to get a link to a site where there's collected information where they can request a meeting? Or do we mandate a meeting? Because it is the problem. You set up a meeting and you get the same couple of people come, <laughs> No matter wh- how important the issue or what it is, you get the same people. And uh, I don't know what the benefit is because it was originally a requirement in the Next, almost final draft in the 2006 land development code that there necessitated a neighborhood meeting. Yes, and it came up. And it, when the final draft came back after it was deferred by the city commission, that was removed and it turned into what we have now. Um, so that's I remember back yeah. there's, a, there's a history that this has been a, a, a give and take and uh controversial issue for a long time so it's well worth having a conversation on how to address some of the what the real issues are it's not really the meeting it's
3: mm-hmm.
8: it's being able to know what's going
11: on most of the time and if there is a meeting is there a, a standard or protocol
3: for um discussion yeah. and and respect on both sides of the table
0: and
11: their fears are here, here.
0: Um, I think, yeah, I do Rob, Rob, are you on? Is it Rob? I think in. Yes, Wondack, I am. I, they, don't, didn't, don't they have the, a provision where you you have to send the report back, like, of some sort? But go ahead, Rob. Yes. Now, uh, on, actually,
12: you, actually, I think Elizabeth wrote that many years ago. But we had. A requirement where they do have a requirement for the typical state notice period or area and for neighborhood groups and the in district and at large commissioners to receive notice of a neighborhood meeting. Um, Occasionally we would have those where nobody showed up, but that was rare. I will say that the end result of that was that. When people showed up at the end of the process uh with you know torpedoes to shoot and they hadn't been to the neighborhood meeting or the planning commission meeting those opinions eventually got significantly discounted because we did a good job of getting the notice out people did get the notice and the at a commission meeting having somebody come and say well i didn't talk to them because you're the decision makers that kind of stuff goes away and our meetings you know at the same time we we changed our consent agendas around but our our meetings and our public hearing times were probably cut in half um because when they held, held the neighborhood meeting they had to provide us a notarized document that said where the meeting was held who was there what the presentation from the applicant was what questions were asked and how they were answered and they had to notarize that have that notarized that it was a true and accurate reflection of the meeting i don't ever recall having somebody question what was in that affidavit and doing it for almost 15 years or maybe 16 years um and i would also say that so if the neighborhood neighbors came to the neighborhood meeting with 15 issues, and the developer was able to work out 10 of those issues. Then instead of having 15 people at the hearing, you had five. And it's easy for the public bodies to tell if the developer really tried to solve the problems the neighborhood saw with the development or not and vote accordingly or to add a stipulation to, you know, get more towards what the neighborhood wanted. It's, you know, no zoning system is perfect, but that one works well. You know, it does cost a little more money up front because they got to send out the letters. They got to find a place. They got to hold the meeting. But on the backside, you save potentially months of, of time, especially given some of the things I've heard tonight on this call and from others involved in the development process. Thanks, Rob. I hope that's helpful. If it's not, I'm sorry.
0: Thank you. Monica, you had your hand raised.
3: Hello? Yes. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Go ahead.
14: Um, So I'm a resident. I can provide an opinion from a resident standpoint. Absolutely. As a resident, I would love to know that if there is a development planned around that is beyond 400 feet, meaning a development that would, you know, use the infrastructure that I'm using on a daily basis, or that would create additional pollution or noise or anything that would impact the place I live, I would like to know about it. So I would say absolutely, these are necessary. Uh, all the comments that have been made, I think are spot on. There are challenges in these meetings, because if you show up and, or if you put it out there and nobody shows up, then what's the point? But One thing I found and I heard from people in this city is that by the time the community meeting is set up, the decisions have already been made. So therefore, I think the timing and the ability of the residents to provide input and collaborate with the developer is essential. Because I think that would you know, create buy-in and that would reduce the number of comments that are made to the commission. I think what happens is um, developers come, they say, this is it, take it or leave it. I'm cutting the trees, this is it, take it or leave it. And then people are left with like, oh, okay, then why did you call me? I mean, well, what's the point if I can have no say so? So I think these are some, um, to the point of everything that was said, it's about process, it's about timing, it's about the audience. Uh, to be a little bit extended and think a little bit beyond just the housing, but also the infrastructure, the schooling, the transportation, and everything else that the new development brings with it. Uh, where maybe there used to be a vacant land before. Uh, so you know that that would be my comment. And then last but not least, uh, you know, ask the residents, put it in the survey. Do they want to have community meetings?
0: Thank you
5: Monica Josh uh, one thing that I have seen through many years living here in the city is that that there is really a, set, a very very big divide, uh, divide. it's the between with the developed developers planning and neighborhood associations and residents I do think there needs to be better uh, uh, communication done because that is so uh, so often than not that communication breaks down so fast and by the time residents or neighborhoods hear about a project it's already <clears throat> well into development and close to actually being started for construction thank you and josh
0: michael I, I want to ask you just because you're a big neighborhood guy what do you think the idea of a required meeting I think it makes a difference
1: Well,
7: um, I think there needs to be some sort of requirement, but it needs to be flexible. It's something like Gary was referring to, that we need to do something, uh, but to have a required meeting where nobody shows up could be you know, a waste of time and money. Um, but I think of it as a neighborhood person, I think of it as how democracy is playing out. I mean, the developer has lots of options and rights and commitments too, um, but they have a, a, you know, a, a good latitude of choices on their plate. Whereas the neighborhood, unless they get involved in the process at some, some level, they have no options as to controlling or um,
3: adjusting the outcome. So that
7: said, In my neighborhood, there is pretty much a core group of people who are attentive and interested. Um, So sometimes it's like the same people showing up. (laughs) But my neighborhood, this is a character of my neighborhood. It's backwater. It's an area that a number of people that, as far as I can tell, move to, so they're under the radar. They don't want to be involved. They want the core group to speak for them. So that's a form of democracy. Um, How this will all play out, I don't know, but I think there needs to be something included Um, just so that, you know, a week before a meeting, wherever people are going to get up in arms and say, I didn't hear about this, and really make problems. You know, do we want to make more problems for? The hearing process, and for the developer, you know, when people get blindsided, uh, that's not beneficial either. So,
11: with social media and so many, you know, <laughs> technological advancements, you know, can we look to uh, other um, opportunities to disseminate that information on a on a on a development website, you know, or um, some sort of other platform um, that. You know, may not be in person, but you know, and 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 even then, get the public involved earlier um, in the process, where it's it's not personal. Uh, it gives them more time, maybe you know, get some of the feelings out of it. Um, you know, get a, a drawing out there early, and and you know, just and have it be more like uh, a forum. That's
0: that's yeah, online. that's a great idea. <laughs> Jeff, doesn't our new, isn't the new system a woken, new computer system we're woken on? Won't it have more robust capabilities to put plans up, to put applications up?
1: Yes. And I don't remember all the details, but it basically puts everything out there. So you can take a look at the drawings, the applications, where it's at, the whole line you are just from a, a look at it, but I I not remember all the details about it, Thanks I'm so not any of the IT, it all <laughs> It's a much more robust and much more open system,
0: than so that's something to look at too. I think you're making both of you making a good point. I mean maybe there's a, a method we could use social media and mm-hmm. technology to kind of gauge you know Public do hit. we need a meeting yeah. you know is all there issues out there that need a meeting, and then if there is, you know then we can mm. follow up with that, maybe something like that okay mm. i kind of like, like I like the idea of this. You know, I've had people all the time saying, oh, I see the sign, but that doesn't tell me anything, and they don't want to, although they can come down here and meet with you guys, they normally don't. They want to be able to click on their computer and see what the picture looks like and all that. <laughs> I think that will be a trick. Elizabeth, we've given you a lot here. We have two more questions to go, but anything we're missing there on that topic?
2: One more oh, comment? Oh,
13: I'm sorry. Gary, also raised his hand here. Thank you. I'll make it quick. Um, My name is Gary Weber. I'm the president of Sunset Hill Neighborhood Association. Um, We just had a proposed infill development that pretty failed pretty miserably because of communication. And and I'm not not a one who who advocates requiring meetings, but anytime you take an advantage to inform people early and give them a chance to comment in some form or other, it will increase the chances of a successful project. So Yes, everybody should get the letter and, and 200 and 400 feet. Both are good. I I approve of a, I prefer the larger one if possible. But if you could give them a, a chance to reply and say, I want to have a meeting, then if you get 15 replies, they say, oh, yeah, I want to have a meeting. Then you can schedule a meeting and you can use this technology we're using today to have a meeting where people, where you don't have to have a conf- large conference room to hold 20 or 30 people just a small one for the people who can't do the technology and the rest can come in on on video conferencing so and then if you've ever tried to to navigate your way through the documents for a development currently i'm an old hat and i still struggle i i mean i i'm a community advocate and familiar with the city's website and their ability of the methodology they use to disseminate information and it's it's not easy it is not easy so we need to improve the accessibility for documents so that people know what's coming. We need to see if we can find out how many of them would like to attend a meeting and then facilitate a meeting that can be done uh, without large rooms and, and lots of work. So, um, the, and the earlier you can do this, the more successful you'll be. In this one that just happened here in my neighborhood, the developer never contacted anyone. He sent out the letter and went before the the planning commission, no one said anything. It went for the city commission and then everybody showed up. So if they had had a chance to make their complaints earlier, their, their influence on this project would have been lessened, as was mentioned earlier. If you can give people a chance to have input early, then when it's time to make a decision and vote it's much easier to say, yes, we need this development than it is to say, no, these folks are are really being done wrong. So early communication, input possibilities, yes. Thank you, Gary. Elizabeth,
0: got, oh, now. We got hey. what you need
2: there. I I'm sorry that nobody had any strong feelings about that <laughs> one. <laughs> We'll come back to it. Yeah, I I hear an answer that involves some choices. So we'll come back to that. Um, we actually, we're down to one last question. Um, oh, yeah, I know. I'm going to pop it back up for a sec. Last one is about water, right? Um, and so there's there's um, a significant section in Plan 2040 about water and water use. And um, I wanted to see if I could get some background or some um, bigger picture thinking from the group about kind of what took us down the path of thinking about water use, um, how does the community think about water use is this a is this a forward thinking aspect of plan 2040 what is the what's the context around this water discussion um, and how does that help us understand where we're going in the regulatory process
0: um I've got to admit i'm not I'm not familiar with that part of plan 2040 Jeff do you remember Dis- discussion around that section or any background of that? I mean, I think of stormwater and I know there's a lot there, but the water usage section, I don't remember very well.
1: Uh, as caffeinated as I was earlier, so this may not all be aligned here. But I remember in 2040, there was a lot of discussion about water conservation and water utilization, trying to uh, low-impact uh, Landscaping and, and those kind of things. I think that's, that's kind of the, the one bit of it. And I think there's another one about um, water quality and stormwater runoff and how this can impact each other and also the effects of that has on the storm sewer and also the sanitary sewer system the way it goes. And I'm sure I'm leaving out a big chunk of that. Can just can't recall cool off the top of my head.
0: Elizabeth, well, you might have read that section more recently than us. Do you? Can you give us a little more background? I don't remember which section that is? Is that in the environmental? It's uh, Chapter 2 in in Plan
8: 2040. Part of it is because Lawrence is almost totally dependent on surface water sources, the river, and Clinton Lake. Hmm. So those are highly susceptible to drought. And agricultural contamination and upstream contamination by Topeka, (laughs) uh, which has happened more than once when their sewage treatment plant has been inundated and the sewage has gone into the river, which has actually required that the river (laughs) intakes be shut down temporarily because our system wasn't set up remove that much would put more pressure on Clinton Lake. And Clinton Lake is run by the Army Corps of Engineers. It has a siltation issue, which really hasn't been adequately addressed. We're running to the um, useful end of Clinton Lake unless there's some action taken. So there was a concern about just, and with climate change and the predictions were in drought conditions here, not as bad as other parts of the state, but it's a persistent drought. So encouraging um, more efficient landscaping and trying to get away from the idea of bright green lawns in the middle of brown, uh, those types of things. That all that was all part of the background, and I'm sure you've seen that in other parts of the country. But the the very basic is our sp- Sources. We don't use groundwater as our city source. So, what I hear is
11: like limited water availability over a 20 year period and then consideration of irrigation systems for residential yards and things
8: like that. You know, how do you take those into account? It's just that really does have that discussion built into a development. I mean, no one was talking about actual regulations or prescriptions yet. It was. We need to be taking this into account because of what we perceive as coming over the next 30 years as the climate shifts.
10: And, and we're talking about artificial uh, turf,
8: right?
0: <laughs> Don't we have a regulation against artificial turf?
8: <laughs> <laughs> we Come can on, talk
0: pal. about it. Bossy, <laughs> well, go ahead. We us will <laughs> down yeah. the road.
6: <laughs> so I was, I was just going to add that um, there is a considerable amount. Of energy, particularly electricity use um, for the treatment and delivery of water. So this also fits into the sustainability issue. We have one community in Kansas, Hayes, that really has been a model for um, paying attention to what's the right way to use water. Um, I think they there's something like I'll get the average, you know. 83 gallons a month and i'll have to figure out if that's a month or or whatever but i um can send or if you want to look into what Hayes, kansas is doing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um i don't know if any of this is part of their land use um but if it is that's a place we could get some ideas absolutely that's all really helpful thank you guys
2: anybody else anything that we missed in there that's that we're on the road now i know where we're
3: going with this All right. It does not look like we have other comments on that. Pretty straightforward. So let's see. Let's
2: take us back to the last few slides. If that's okay with everybody. We just got a couple more here. Maybe. Okay, next steps. Um so We're going to build in what you've shared with us this evening. Um, We have more to add from the code, the current code in terms of adding detail and providing examples. Um, I noticed a lot of our discussion tonight, we circled back to this happened here and this happened there. And that's all incredibly useful in helping people understand um, and frame the issues that we're talking about. So um, we're going to go back in and do that, finish out the draft, um, review it again with staff to make sure that we've hit the right note on every. Everything. And then um, we plan on releasing a copy to everyone on the steering committee and also posting it on the project website um, in early January. That would not be like January 2nd, early January. We're probably talking like um, somewhere in the first full week. We do want to make sure that you have some time to read the whole thing before our steering committee on the 26th. We really try to make sure that you've got. A couple weeks or a little bit longer depending on how long the document is um, and that was one of the reasons we wanted to do a preview tonight just so you know what you're diving into when you get it um, so i think we're looking at thursday january 26th for our next meeting and um, the our consultant team will be back out in lawrence yay um, so we'll be in the room with you during the meeting. And then we will blend that with some public outreach um, opportunities to, from before and after that meeting and um, updating some information on the website, too. Um, so we'll kind of do a more coordinated um, sort of outreach yeah approach as we get closer to the meetings to let everybody know what's going on. Um, and then we'll sit down and go through it and we'll start looking through some of the stuff that we talked about tonight uh, and start steering our way forward into that first draft of um, you know what module three is going to be. I mean, module one is going to be. Um, I think I, one more slide. Yep, nope, that's it. So I wanted to say thanks. Um, need to see if there's anything else you guys want to tell me before we go back and finish drafting. I also want to say thank you for a really good and informative conversation. Lots of information from lots of different perspectives, and that's always incredibly helpful to the project.
0: So, Elizabeth, can you... We get this document. um, When we read it, what, what should we be planning to do can come with comments on, on, the, on the 26th. Are you asking us to say, you know, I mean, one option would be, are we gonna edit this document? Like we disagree with this line or that, or is this a document that is done and you, we want to start having a discussion about what it means for next steps?
2: Yeah, great question. You don't need to edit it.
0: Okay, we'll ask good.
2: that down the road. <laughs> um, so nope, keep your red pens down or I use a purple pen because, you know, K-State and anyhow um <laughs> so um what what we'd like to talk about and we'll put this in the beginning of the document for you um we'd like agree or disagree we'd like um so if if we say, hey, we want to explore this direction and you want to say, no, 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 we did that. That's not going to work. We want that input. Um, or or you can say, yep, we we think we're heading in the right direction and we can kind of do that on a topic by topic basis. We want you to ask more questions. So if you read something and you want to know where do you think this is going next, we can start answering those questions. and and really, what you guys all bring to the table as a steering committee is additional information. Um, So if you want to expand a topic or add nuance to a topic, that's also what we're looking for. So high-level discussion, don't have to line edit, um, but you're kind of making sure that you're sending us off in the right direction as we start drafting.
0: So big, big, big item discussions, agreed, disagreed, areas we want more information on as you head into the next step.
2: Please, and thank you.
7: Okay. okay. public comment. What? Are you taking public comment? Uh, yeah, we've taken public comment. Yes. I'll, I'll, I'll be brief as I can. Okay. i only about
3: five minutes left. Um, I
7: have a, a couple comments and then a final question. Actually, um, I don't know how many you follow any specific particular application proposals but just two days ago the city commission there was a discussion about a mixed-use density question in east lawrence um the east lawrence is kind of like a learning laboratory of where we're going and how we're going to get through this transition to more density and mixed use um there was a bar restaurant proposal next immediately next door to a single family residence across the street from residence anyway it got it gets messy um i think you worked it out pretty well but we don't want to have to go through that time and time again so the process of how this new code will then be implemented broadly is going to be you know a challenge um and the neighborhood meetings is going to be one way to do that, but there's going to be other layers that, you know, we we, we can't afford to streamline the process so much that those discussions are pushed to the side. Um, regarding water, just one couple things there. Um, Jim described the, the climate impacts really well, but next Tuesday, the city commission, I think it's Tuesday, um, city commission city managers report will cover a natural landscaping ordinance that came out of the sustainability advisory board last May. Um, This is just a report and some discussion. It will it will address, you know, new landscaping requirements or options, whatever for residential land or commercial uh, for water saving. Natural landscaping, xeriscaping, low-water landscaping, things of that sort. So that, I think, ultimately can or should be incorporated in this code. I mean, right now, I forget (laughs) which section the landscape part is right now, but it's in the code under, quote, weed ordinance." Anyway, um, and just a couple other things that I wanted to point out that I'd like to see from the um, agenda today under Improved and Tailored Development Standards on page four, uh, parking was mentioned. Parking um, modifications, I think is how it was put. Lots of communities are eliminating minimum parking requirements. Um, Parking, there's like eight parking spaces per resident in every city. like how many parking spaces does a person need now this can't be everywhere like addressing parking in Oriad is going to be different than addressing it for a new shopping center but eliminating some of those parking requirements in some areas for some developments needs to be considered outdoor lighting night dark sky provisions for outdoor lighting which is also on the planning department works plan right now but it's in limbo but it will be ultimately incorporated at some level and bikeways um, the agenda mentioned article 11 general requirements for sidewalks bikeways need to be in there as well as in article 8 which is a subdivision regulations sustainability action network is providing proposals for a number of these different things which You at some point I assume we'll see Uh, we submitted it and I'm not sure where it's gone to yet but those are the kind of things we're looking forward to so my final question code assessment approach code assessment will not be revised following community input instead detailed drafting approaches and responses to community based suggestions will be incorporated in the drafting process I'd like Elizabeth to Elizabeth, yeah, yeah. Yep. to kind of explain exactly what that means, I'm, I I want to know what my input might amount to. It. Thank you.
3: Go right, ahead, Elizabeth. But,
2: yeah, thank you. Yeah. So th- we we gather the comment um, comments from um, whatever sources they come from, and um, add them to the end of the report. So we collect the information. The reason we don't back up and rewrite the report is because then going forward into the drafting, we will look at um, sort of the, where we were in the code assessment and we add on the input that we got from the community. Um, So it just becomes a piece of it. We find that if we back up and rewrite the code assessment until we have, um, you know, added everything in there, people get antsy to get to the code drafting. Um, so we we do a, a collection of the comments um, and then we move into the drafting and then we make sure that the drafting reflects what we're hearing in the comments and what we saw in the code assessment. So we kind of try to um, meld those together as we move forward and not spend more time in the assessment um, where we lose people's interest for the most part. So that's why we do that that way. The The input is meaningful.
0: Because If I understand it right, the code assessment might say, for example, we need stronger code language on water usage. Well, then the code drafting is when we get to what that looks like. So most of your recommendations that I've seen are code language, we need these things in the code. And that's where we'll be seeing those, I think, as we get into those three or four drafts of the
7: code. When you, at some point, like I said you know when you provide a community organization a neighborhood group or whatever to do a presentation here and supposedly you know allow us to do that at some point will that input then somehow be incorporated well it, it will be considered in the code draft it's it's considered considered in the code draft so yeah. okay, okay. So, so draft one comes
0: out and it says you know um whatever. You can't have grass in And then someone else might say, well, no, we need that code language to be more allowable. And so we go through several language you know, areas of that. Right. Yeah, that's what that's that's it much. is. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Greg, okay. Could you just quickly
8: run through just so everybody knows? I mean, the steering committee, we're gonna do this stage. What comes next until it's the final a final
0: piece that goes for a vote and yeah. an option? So Use the process, Elizabeth. Can you put back up the? I think it's your second slide, or you know that has the full process on it there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'll say a few things, and then you can probably be more accurate than I. <laughs> um, so again, the, the the section we're on, which is about to end, is this kind of overall assessment. What sorts of issues do we want to address in the new code? what are good things about the code? What are bad things about the code? What are things we want to address? Gathering that input, that's that stage. You know, we hope to finish on, you know, in December 22, we'll, we're gonna finish that in January, but pretty close. So then that leads us through, you know, an eight month process, basically, of three drafts of the code as we look through that process. So again, they present us a draft, we all give feedback on that. We being the committee, we being the community. A second draft comes back. We give feedback. A third draft comes back. And then leading to a draft that we recommend and then goes through the whole actual public process planning commission, boards, you know, public process, eventually city commission,
3: eventually adoption. How'd that do, Elizabeth?
2: That was perfect. Do you want to take over drafting too? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: But I okay. have a lot of purple pins. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you
2: know. Awesome. Thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's several <laughs> pieces of that, both in this process and the final. <laughs> a lot of people, of course, are like, why is this taking so long? But that's why.
9: Frank, can I ask a question? I know either Gary or Phil brought it up before we started the meeting, but I've, I know there's been some local discussion about pulling out the process part and sort of doing that first so that to the extent that there is additional development coming because of the Panasonic project and all of that stuff, we have something to start working with a little sooner than, than this full process. Has that conversation, I guess, gotten to the point of Elizabeth and Clarion and, and Elizabeth, what are your thoughts about pulling that out and, and kind of doing that piece first?
1: I don't know if Jeff wants to take that question first or Elizabeth or... I can start, Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. I mean, we brought that up earlier We're open to looking at it. it was just, we haven't had a conversation about what bit of the code is going in what installments yet. So we don't know who's going first and the buddy world. Objectives. We're open to the idea. Of, I where mean, and Elizabeth had correct me if I missed straight on that part. Of
2: no, that's absolutely correct. So we normally do the drafts in the way that you see in the orange box here. So we do districts, zone districts and uses first, because that's kind of the core of the code. Um, But we have had situations where we've done administration and procedures first. Um, One of the reasons that we set it up this way is um, even in situations where we have a client like Lawrence who's saying, you know, the, the procedures are bogging us down and we're not being able to get stuff through, very often, we find that you need to make changes to the standards to get the procedures to work better. But we, we're, we're flexible. You can, you can do this almost in any order. Um, and so if it is, um, you know, the desire that we move administration and procedures to the front, we can make that happen.
0: I think we've had some discussion about that in general I, my thought was to get to the code assessment and see where we're at, and then, you know, kind of figure out, you know, at that 26th meeting, kind of where we're going from there. Um, and I think another, you know, yeah, so I think that's, I think that'll be the next discussion point as we look at that code assessment.
2: Yeah, that's usually our decision point. We, we, and we do come back after the code assessment and ask, okay, are we sticking with this order? Or are we reorganizing? So that's the natural
3: place to do it.
0: Okay, other questions? If not, I'm a little bit over time, but thank you. Get ready for early January for 60, 60 pages and the uh, fun. And then we will, be back
3: here
5: you on January 26th. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Josh. Uh, will this information uh, be also be uh, sent out to the neighborhood associations that are present tonight with the contact information? With that contact information? The information from today? From what was given, you guys have been reading. So yeah that, that all, associations can be kind of a little bit more well informed. it'll
0: so certainly be uh, it'll certainly be available on the on the, on the on the on the development code website, which anyone can go and sign up and get emails. I get an email of every time it comes out. So hopefully the neighborhood groups have signed up for it and the people who are interested have signed up for it, then you'll get the email that says, as soon as this is released, um everyone on that email list will get it or you can go to the website if you don't like email and just check that website until it comes out the, it's on the f- very front page of the city of lawrence on the big boxes on top Tele- development code update so yes it'll all be out there for anyone to see
5: thank you, okay, thank you Mayor f- uh, okay thank you all, all right, we'll Commissioner. see you soon
2: thanks everybody happy holidays see you in january Thank, you. Thank, you. Thank you.